The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode number 644 for Sunday, February 12, 2017. Uh, greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We share it all. We try to answer your questions. Really, what we try to do is learn four new things each and every time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include GoDaddy, GoDaddy.com, where coupon code MGG30, that's MGG30, saves you 30%, saves me 30% on new purchases. We'll talk about that in a minute. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in frozen per precipitation laden fairfield connecticut this is john f braun yeah so uh it right we're you know i had i had a crazy amount of travel this week john and for the most part i I would love to say that i scheduled it brilliantly uh around these these you know basically three blizzards that that we had or a snowstorm and two blizzards but uh but it just it was just dumb luck really i um I took the train to Boston on Tuesday for a multi-day Sonos kind of press event. They had some stuff to talk to us about that's going on over there, which was really nice. Uh, But I took the train down because it was snowing on Tuesday and I thought, well, I don't want to drive into Boston with that. So I took the train in and that was fine. And then I was supposed to come back Thursday, but uh, we had a blizzard there. So I stayed in Boston for the blizzard on Thursday and then flew to Dallas Friday Spoke in Dallas Saturday, flew back Saturday. Now we're having a blizzard on Sunday while we're recording this. So it's, uh, but all my flights are on time. Everything was golden, you know, it was all good. But um, yeah, I spoke about uh, mesh networks Uh, really. Well, that was the title of my talk was mesh networks yesterday down in in Dallas. Uh, It was a great user group down there. We actually spent three hours talking about routers. Uh, Most of it was, you know, their questions and, us kind of having a round table discussion, big round table, but you know, not, it wasn't at a, at a round table. Was it actually? Oh, no, no, there was no okay. table. I was standing in front of a group of people. Okay. You're talking figuratively, figuratively. Uh, That's correct. Yeah. 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 But um, it was, a, it was a good discussion. And I know we've promised to talk about a couple of things and that's the Linksys Velop And of course the Google Wi-Fi. I'm still waiting for some answers from both of those companies, believe it or not. Uh, the short version is Velop really interests me because of the hardware, because it's got tri-band and all that stuff. Uh, they have done some weird things to limit their software. Uh, and, and that's kind of okay. Every, every vendor seems to do that when they, when they launch because they want to get the hardware out and then, uh, you know, give a, a limited feature set in the software that gets people up and running. And then over time can kind of roll out new, new, uh, new new software features the one problem and that's fine i don't really hold that against them necessarily but uh i'm having really inconsistent speed results and it doesn't sound like i'm alone based on other people that i've talked to and some forum posts that i've read so i'm hoping that a software update can resolve that kind of stuff or maybe there's just something else going on so i want to uh so at, at this point i would say you know hold off on the on the velop just because of that but uh, but hopefully in the next week or so we can we can talk a little more in detail 
about that because that that product it's kind of like the uh, the Netgear Orbi, although the Orbi doesn't have any speed problems. But uh, but in terms of you know the tri band hardware, that's very interesting. So so there's that one. The Google Wi Fi. Uh, similarly, I'm waiting for some answers specifically about QoS from them as to whether or not they support it. They it certainly doesn't seem like it supports it. But uh, but I want to know that for certain before we talk more in depth about it. But, you know, at that price, Google Wi-Fi is a, certainly a compelling thing. And uh, and it's it, it, the speeds are, you know, I would say on par with what you get with Eero with current software uh, from them. So pretty good stuff um, so far. So that's the uh, that's the short of it. Certainly not the long of it. But uh, but there you go. So let's. uh any th- any uh, anything to add or any questions about that, John? Before we move on to our uh, our fill here. No, I'm still happy with the uh, the old Eero. Yeah, they, they did a recent software update. Makes the uh, interface. Uh, now they they repositioned a lot of the data, and I think it's nice. So they uh, they haven't released any uh, any firmware updates. Yeah, so they I did. Two point uh, two point two just came out the other day. Oh, Don't update now. Yeah, yeah, and that that no, of actually not. right that actually makes some some significant changes. They say I haven't uh, fully tested with it yet, but to uh, to the efficiency of the mesh and the the handoff between devices. So that should that should help actually quite a bit. Hey, look at that! It says update available. Oh no! Okay, that's nice. We'll uh, okay yeah, do huh, it later. I'm surprised I didn't get a notification. I would have liked to have gotten a notification. Oh well, there's whatever. no notification. It just takes care of it for you when when the time is right. So. Yeah, I just happened to notice it in the hotel room the other night while I was taking some screenshots for my my presentation yesterday, and uh, I was like, "Hey, there's there's the update." So I I took the screenshots before I triggered the remote update of the Euro because you know I I wanted to get my screenshots, so so all my screenshots had your little update available thing. But uh, but yeah, um, but yeah, the, the Euro is, is still atop my my list of of mesh recommendations. Uh, the Synology RT 2600 AC is atop my list of uh, standalone router recommendations. And I think, I think I wound up convincing people to buy both of those yesterday. So, all right, let's move on to Phil change gears entirely. And, uh, and Phil says, I recall a few shows back, you recommended a battery pack for iOS devices from Monoprice. Uh, he says, I also found, and he, he, you know, found some on Monoprice. And he says, I also found some off-brand one on Amazon. I was hoping to get your feedback on to which one you would prefer and why. So here's the thing, Phil and everyone. Um, I would, it, it's, this is a hard question to answer, but maybe it's not that hard. Uh, I would tend to lead toward, lean towards the Monoprice stuff over some, you know, off-brand on Amazon simply because I've had good experience with Monoprice and I have no experience with off-brand on Amazon batteries. But it's entirely possible that they're both made in the same factory and might even be, you know, the same battery at their core. Um, it, it, you know, when I look at um, at an external battery, you know, something for the iPhone, something for the iPad, and, and we all need these from time to time, or many of us need these, maybe not all of us. Uh, but I certainly spent my my share of time using them over the last few days while traveling. Uh, I obviously look at capacity, how much it'll it'll it's supposed to deliver, and not all batteries deliver what they're supposed to deliver. And I also look at form factor. You know, does it fit the way I like to do it? Is it something I would want to keep in my pocket with my phone? If so, how does that work? Uh, 
I look at how many ports it has, if that if that matters. Again, all of that stuff. I make sure I know whether some or all of the ports on the battery pack can charge an iOS device at two amps instead of one amp. Some batteries can do two amps only for Android. Some are smart enough to be able to do both iOS and Android and, and you know, all of that. So you've got to, you got to just be aware and make sure you're getting something. If you want it to be able to charge faster than the one amp. And most of your devices can, can accept a charge faster than one amp. Not, not everybody can go up to two, but, uh, but you can certainly go faster. So, uh you know, take a look at that. That's one of the things I look at. Um, both of the ones that, that, you know, and I researched the ones that Phil sent in and, and they all, they all do that. The monoprice stuff does it. But um, part of the, part of the reason it's hard for me to weigh in on this is I don't think I've personally purchased a battery pack in a very, very long time. Actually, I say that, that it, that's not true. I, before we went to Europe, I bought a tilt battery pack to use for my um, it was a, a battery case to use for my iPhone SE because I didn't have a good one for the iPhone five, you know, slash five S slash SE sized phone. So I bought one personally, you know, with my own little money uh, at Amazon and, and I chose tilt because I trust them. Um, but, you know, and here's the deal, you know, having my pick of pretty much mostly everything that's sent to me, um, I tend to go with the the brands that I know, uh, which includes Tilt, as I mentioned. Monoprice is another one I'm happy to use, and Anchor. It's basically, you know, those are the three that I tend to really trust because we're talking about plugging in a device to charge your iPhone or your iPad, and your iPhone and your iPad cost you, you know, somewhere close to a thousand bucks, right? Certainly north of five hundred. And saving 10 bucks on a battery pack sounds kind of dangerous to me. And, you know, as we learned from you, John, back in the spring, plug the wrong thing into your iOS device and it will no longer charge from any source anymore. And it's effectively useless. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all about being frugal. And I know it may not seem like that uh, based on some of the recommendation, recommendations I give here, but I, I certainly am. I, I don't like to spend money unnecessarily. We're talking 10 bucks here to use something that you can trust to plug into your phone. And so, you know, that's why I bought the tilt battery pack instead of, you know, whatever Joe Schmo's battery pack. Joe Schmo's a really nice guy. I've known him for years. He makes terrible battery packs though. So I don't buy his. So that's my thoughts on it. Uh, you know, your mileage may vary. What you, you, you stuff that, that you trust that's different from that, John. Absolutely. Uh, so one to the uh, subject of uh, uh, chargers blowing up your device, uh, the company uh, looks like they no longer make chargers and for good reason, good. because it was a piece of garbage. Uh, the company, uh, they still exist. Moda, M-O-T-A. And um, it blew up my device and their customer service was horrible. They uh, the, the best they could do is they said, oh, would you like another one? And it's like, yeah, boy. Sign me up for that to have another one of yeah, more you devices. Want. Yeah, that's right. I was like, how about you pay for uh, the device uh, that your your uh, faulty design? Uh, and they're like, no, no, we're not going to do that. I'm like, yeah. So I learned learned a valuable lesson. It was a you know I got it through Groupon. You know it was inexpensive. It was like under ten dollars. Um, 
and it worked for a while and then all of a sudden it uh, it went rogue and uh yeah and that's <laughs> what i'm saying everything. it's like you know how, how much is it worth saving clearly in your case it wasn't worth saving 10 bucks yeah but it was you know that they seem to be a reputable uh, vendor but uh, again it looks like they exited that market now they make drones and okay. I, don't, I don't know if i'd want to get one of their drones but um to your recommendations so battery pack so i'm going to make some recommendations so one i'm going to tweak what you said um you said 2.1 uh amps i said two actually, in a very general sense i didn't even say 2.1 okay. so yeah. some of the things i'm going to mention here actually will go up to 2.4 which okay. uh, many ios devices can handle and and if you can I, get that iPads. you want that yeah that's right yeah well even my iphone my iphone 7 will accept uh 2400 uh it won't I've charge that it. fast yes it does you, I have, it, we'll talk further. There's a utility that I, I have that indicates that the phone is in fact accepting uh, a charge at 2.4. So we'll talk about it a little later. That, but that, we that doesn't, have you tested it with your little meter? Uh, I can, but the utility that I have on the phone that tells what current is coming in to charge it, um, it has always been accurate. So I have no reason to question it. Well, I do, because with a formula okay. that we've heard about batteries is that it's essentially like one C is, is the formula. Right. So if your battery is uh, it, it's amps to to thousand milliamp hours. Right. So if your phone battery is capable, uh, it, it holds a thousand milliamp hours of a char- of a charge at full capacity, then it can uh, it, it can only safely charge at one amp. So in order to safely charge at 2.4 amps by that formula, your phone battery would need to be 2,400 milliamp hours or larger, which of course an iPad is, but I don't believe your phone is, I think your phone is like 1,700. So that's why I'm asking if you put a meter on it and actually tested to see how much current is actually passing to the phone battery. I'll put the meter on to verify. Okay. But all I'm saying is that the utility I have that tells the level of what, what current, is this? What is this mysterious utility? What's the name of it? Uh, it's called battery percentage. Okay. And, My guess is uh, it's wrong because I, I have an iPhone seven as well. Okay. And I've put a meter on it and it, it tends to follow that, that formula, that one C formula. Okay. Um, Fair enough. I, I believe what the utility is saying, but I'll, I'll verify with my, yeah. uh, my USB charger. Yeah, yeah. But, but, Back to the battery packs that we're talking about here. So I have some criteria. So one, a number of these do offer 2.4 amp charging. Um, the first one I'm going to mention here. Well, actually, let me mention the oldest one. So you and I actually both received this at a, at a recent show, and I think it's really cool. So the other criteria I like is if you can get a battery pack that has a, a wall plug, that's a nice feature because then you don't have to carry mm-hmm. around a cable in order to give it a boost. You just plug it into the wall. Um, the one that I like here, and actually I, I, um, I walk the talk is that I actually brought it with me, um, to, uh, uh, CES because I needed a, a good charger here. And this is the, uh, my charge Amprong plus. There you go. Uh, and I believe it's, uh, it's about 6,000. So the capacity is uh, 6,700 milliamp hours. Uh, it can do 2.4 amp output on both ports. Uh, and the retail is 50 bucks and has two USB ports. So you could actually charge two devices at once. So I think that's a really nice one. That's cool. Um, the second one here is Ventev. Uh, yeah. Also another one. So, you know, I would trust, uh, I would trust both of these brands that you've mentioned so far. 
to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Yep. And Ventev makes one that's very similar. It's called a PowerCell 6000 Plus. It can also do, uh, now it can do one amp and 2.1. So one of the ports is one amp, one is 2.1. But it also has about, well, as the name implies, 6,000 you know, milliamp hours worth of charge. And that one looks to retail for 60 bucks. So they're, they're a little bulky, but you can still carry them in a computer bag and stuff like that. And then sure. the last one that I'll mention, just because I like the form factor, is the Thinium Recharge Plus. Mm. Um, and this one also plugs into the wall. It's smaller capacity. I think it's about uh, 3,000 milliamp hours. Um, well, let's see. Yeah, it's about 70 bucks here. And actually, I have the Recharge regular version. So they have one that provides two amps here. The one that they, uh, they sent me to a review actually only does one amp okay uh, yep. output but it's nice because it's thin has a wall plug has a lightning connector has a usb connector um the the other two that i mentioned just have usb plugs so you're going to need to provide a lightning cable sure this actually has a lightning port built in one of the so ones the i like to, to travel with is is one of the brands i mentioned tilt and mm-hmm. and it's got um they've got various sizes but it's it's about the one i use is about the same form factor as an iphone but uh, but it has its own lightning cable right in it. So you can just pop it right off the bottom and plug it right into the phone. It's a short little cable. So you can basically piggyback your phone with it. Uh, it doesn't actually, you know, attach to your phone other than the, the cable. But uh, but it's a right angle cable, which is great if you need to rest your phone and mess with it while it's being charged, which is something I really like. So it's cool stuff. All right. So hopefully that helps you folks uh, decide what batteries to get for yourselves. None of these are going to break the bank, by the way. But um, but like I said, you know, get something that get something that either you think is reputable or or that we do. And hopefully, you know, it protects your phone and, and all of that. All right. Speaking of protecting your phone, let's go to uh, Adam here. He says a couple of years ago. You guys spoke a bunch of times about the merits of using a tempered glass screen protector on your mobile devices. I took your device and got one for my iPhone and for my iPad mini. A couple of weeks ago, I dropped my iPad mini on a ceramic tile floor. Sure enough, the screen was cracked or so it appeared. I removed the glass screen protector and lo and behold, the iPad screen underneath was in perfect condition. The first thought that went through my head was thanks, Dave and John. It turns out I didn't get caught after all. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks, Adam. I'm glad that that worked for you. I will say I have seen a phone screen crack even with a tempered glass protector. If you hit it, you know, just the well, I was going to say just the right way, but really it's more just the wrong way on the corner. Uh, you can still crack when my son has done it. But uh, but by and large, the the tempered glass protectors do do a great job of protecting while still feeling like glass because they are. And the really good news is that you can get these tempered glass protectors for like it's like a three pack is less than 10 bucks. And my current favorite that I think everybody should get, and I'll explain why is, uh, is from, Oh, I can't even think of the name of the company. I gotta, I gotta find the link that I, that I put, uh, that I put here. It is on Amazon eight ninety nine. It's from a company called Fox Novo F O X N O V O. This is currently what I have on my phone. But uh, but it's not just about the tempered glass. This comes with I'll call it an applicator. Really, what it is, is it's a guide. You take your phone out of its case and you slide uh, this little thing onto the bottom of the phone that goes up maybe, you know, 25 percent of the phone. It's this little orange bracket. And uh, and what it does is it it creates a perfect little pocket 
for you to drop the bottom of this glass screen protector. And so you wipe your phone clean, you slide this thing on there and then you just kind of drop the glass in and it perfectly aligns the thing on your phone. So you don't have to think about it. You don't have to mess with it. You just put it on. And then my advice is push in the middle uh, so that you're pushing the air out. If you start pushing around the edges, you, you might trap a bubble in. If you do just lift up one edge that's closest to where the bubble is and, and you can usually get the bubble out without letting dust in. But uh, but for eight ninety nine for a three pack with the applicator tool, uh, I recommend if you in our house, we have both regular and plus size phones. So I bought one of each and now I have the applicator for all you know future applications, even if I'm not buying Fox Novo's uh, glass. So but eight ninety nine for a three pack is cheap with or without the applicator. So it's a pretty good deal. Um, so there you go. That's uh, that's my favorite on those. Do you have any thoughts on that, John? Nice. I think I got, uh, I've <clears throat> honestly never used them. I think the oh. most recent that I got, and, and fortunately I've never had a drop event that shattered the screen. I've, I've been fortunate in, the, sure. in that respect, but uh, I do remember getting some from, I think Otterbox. Had okay. Some. Yeah. I, they're I so expensive though. I mean, like, like we're talking not quite an order of magnitude. Well, yeah, actually it would be an order of magnitude. Now the difference is like Otterbox's tempered glass protectors come with a lifetime warranty, but I mean, you know, at eight ninety nine for a three pack, it's going to take a long time to get up to whatever the 50 bucks is that they want to charge for this thing. So, eh, you know, love those guys. They make some great products. Otherwise I'm sure their glass screen protectors are fantastic, but they're also fantastically priced. In, in in a way that favors them. So that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I I would uh I I I mean it you know again um it's not that I wouldn't recommend them. I would happily recommend them. Uh I've I've used them and they're fine. They're just massively overpriced. So so you know that's where we that's where we go with it. Anything else on that uh, that front, John? You gotta you gotta try some uh, you gotta try some of these these Fox Novo things, man. This this little applicator is killer. I love it. It's good stuff. Yeah, I just I just don't want to spoil the the pristine. Eh, I don't know. It's really thin. I mean, it it, it I'll, I'll tell you it. I I used to use the plastic stuff because I wanted to keep my screen from being scratched. But I hated it. It, you know, it got all it was it just felt bad and, and all of that. These glass ones, man, they feel great. They're really thin. They fit with pretty much every case I've used. So I don't know. Okay. Yeah. No, different strokes for different folks. Highly recommend you try it. All right. Okay. Well, you know how things go with me listening to what I you do. say. I say every now and then something it's about like 50, you know, 50. Yeah, something uh, or that's, 80, that's 20. generous. Yeah. <laughs> 2080 seems like <laughs> like it. <laughs> All right, let's go to. Uh, why don't you take us to Bobby, John? I'm going to take us to Bobby. So Bobby has a great question, and I have an answer. No, I have two answers. And Bobby says, "Good evening." Well, it's not. It, it will be eventually. Um, and here's what he has to say: At work, I appreciate your optimism, John. I support about 175 iPhones, and have people come to me from time to time explaining how they think. Their iPhone battery is bad. Okay, I like mm -hmm. the way he put that. Yeah. <laughs> now, I know I can send them to the Apple store for a battery test. However, I would like to be able to test the battery myself before sending them to the Apple store. Would either of you happen to know of any iPhone battery testing software I could purchase? 
Um, thank you. All right, Bobby. Well, the thing is, no. No and yes. So the thing is, no, I don't have any you can purchase because the two things I'm going to tell you about are free, though I believe you can donate to them or buy a premium version. So the first one, Dave, and you and I have used this, is coconut battery. For the Mac, right? Correct. Yeah. So coconut battery is a utility for the Mac that can tell you what's going down with the the battery in your Mac, but it also has this not quite hidden, uh, maybe not fully advertised feature, where it also has a screen where if you plug an iOS device in and you click on the little tab saying, tell me about my iOS device, it'll say, hey, here's what's happening with your iOS device. Here's the maximum capacity of the battery. Here's the current capacity. And um, that should give you a very basic feel for the health of the battery and the device, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, it's not running a test uh, per se, but it is giving you, uh, it's telling you, and I think the thing is when people complain that their battery is not working right, um, short of the thing shutting down, that's a whole different story. Um, But, you know, you're going to lose capacity over time, and at some point you may have to replace the battery, either have Apple do it, or, you know, if you're handy, you may be able to do it yourself. But this will tell you at what state your battery is at uh, versus the original design capacity. Yeah. Yeah, it's handy. It's good. It, like like uh, like you said, it's good. That way you know. Okay. And the second one I'm going to mention, now this is the software that I erroneously faulted for destroying my device, but I now have come to rely on it and, and, and love it. And it's called Battery Percentage. And it shows you, very, and this is something you install on your iOS device. Uh, and there's a free version and a pro version. Uh, the pro version will get rid of ads. But it will tell you all sorts of things about the battery in the iOS device. Um, similarly, it'll tell you the uh, max, the uh, maximum capacity, the current capacity. Uh, it'll tell you the voltage of the battery, the temperature. Um, and then if you plug in a charger, Dave, it'll tell you the source, whether it's a you know USB charger or a computer or something, the amperage of the charge. And as we just discussed uh some things will be one amp i've seen some at 2.1 and i've seen some at 2.4 now whether it's really happening i'll verify that dave i, I understand your point and then well, what, it, the total what it might power. be what it might be telling you and i wish i had my meter here to test because i i tried this while we were talking here and it says the amperage now i'm plugged into a cal digit thunderbolt 3 dock that i have on the imac here in the studio largely because this 2011 iMac doesn't have USB three ports. So Thunderbolt three or not Thunderbolt three, sorry, Thunderbolt dock, not Thunderbolt three dock. My apologies. It's Cal digit Thunderbolt dock that has USB three because this computer doesn't, but it also, it has one of these ports on the front. So I use it to charge occasionally. And it says that it's a USB charger, which is interesting. It doesn't think it's a computer and it says the amperage is 1500 milliamps. Now, uh, it also says that my phone is uh, is uh, 1960 milliamp hours is its maximum capacity, and it says my battery health is perfect. Uh, but it but it says it's it the charger the amperage of the charger is 1500 milliamps. Now that may be the maximum amperage of the charger as opposed mm-hmm. to what it's actually currently charging at. And really, the best way to test that would be to plug in a phone that's at a hundred percent because that amperage should change as the phone approaches a hundred percent. 
Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, then that tells us that it's just getting the maximum that the charger can send you as opposed to what the phone is choosing to accept, if that makes sense. Yeah. Or maybe saying, so for example, I tried this with a, the charger that came with, uh, with my iPad, Yeah, which is a 12 watt, 2.4 amp charger. And right. when I plug that into my iPhone 7, it says, oh yeah, the thing that I'm talking to uh, can provide. So maybe it's telling what is being provided, what it can provide. Yeah, the maximum what capacity. Actually being provided. That would make, that would make sense. Yeah, yeah. So those are my two recommendations. Cool. One for the Mac, one for the iOS device. And that will, uh, that's, I think, the best you're going to get. The Apple, if you bring it to the Genius Bar, their, their utility may do more than this. Oh, that would make sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know what, yeah, I don't know if they exercise it or, or maybe there are other signals that they read. So um, there sure. you go. That's yeah. the answer. Yeah, good stuff. Fun. Uh, yeah, I don't have anything else. The coconut battery would have been my thing. I, I had forgotten about battery percentage, uh, after, I mean, I, how could I ever forget, but, uh, but I had forgotten about oh, it. How could I forget? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> but and there's uh, a plethora of other utilities. Uh, a, a lot of general utilities have things that'll tell you various things about the battery, but, uh, these are the ones that, that I use yeah. and you should use in my humble opinion. Yeah. I like this one. I mean, it's nice to, it's nice to be able to get this data without having to, plug into my Mac and, and launch coconut battery. So that's, that's handy stuff. And it's nice to know that it's free. So like, uh, you know, like Bobby, if you have somebody come to you, that's looking to you for some support and says, I think my iPhone battery is bad. You can very, very quickly look and say, Hey, no. Now my question for you is, uh, I tend to trust coconut battery to give me an accurate reading of my battery health. In uh, in your experience, does the number you get from uh, whatever this thing's called battery percentage match what coconut battery tells you from from the Mac side of things? Yes. Okay, great. That's good to know. Sweet. So we can we can trust this to because uh, right now it's telling me mine's perfect. You know that it's nineteen sixty out of nineteen sixty. So that's that it's you know that's my my the skeptical part of me says ah, it's just a made up number. They're just telling me that, but maybe not. So it's in fact, it's, it doesn't sound like maybe not. It sounds like definitely not based on your experience. So that's good. All right. I want to talk about uh, GoDaddy, John work for you. Outstanding. Yeah. So GoDaddy at GoDaddy.com, our first sponsor this week. This is where I go uh, and have always gone to buy my domains. They, uh, they make it easy to sort of consolidate everything together. They, Make it easy to manage your DNS. We, I actually, uh, you know, we used to run our own DNS server for Mac Observer and Backbeat Media. We still do for for some sort of ancillary things that we just have yet to transition over to GoDaddy. But man, I will tell you, managing your DNS with them, uh, it just comes with your domain ownership, or at least it's come with every domain that I've ever gotten. And it's super fast especially if you need to do an update like it used to be. And I, and this is true. Like if we were going to push an update to, to DNS structure on our, our stuff on our own server, it takes a little while to propagate GoDaddy. I guess they must, must be, in fact, I'm certain they are much closer to the source of everything. You push an update there, man. And it is like, boom, everybody in the world knows it. So, uh, you know, and that's assuming you've got your time to live and all that stuff set. Right. But, uh, but definitely a great place uh, to buy domains. Like I said, I buy all of ours there and you know, we're constantly buying domains because we'll come up with ideas for things and it's like, Oh, all right. Yeah. We should have that domain. We should have this one. And, uh, 
and you know, to have a, a coupon that gets you a discount on your domains is great. GoDaddy, they, you know, th- it seems like they pioneered internet coupons. Uh, if they didn't, it certainly looks that way. And, uh, and we have one for you. MGG 30, MGG 30 saves you 30% off of your new purchases. So when you go, when you have that brilliant idea about, Oh, that's a domain. I want to go grab it. And then maybe I'll build a, a project on it later. You go do that. Use coupon code MGG 30 saves you 30%. Your, you know, your little flyer of an idea costs you a little bit less. So it's a little less of an investment, a little less of a risk. And, uh, and GoDaddy allows us to give that to you. So go check it out. Go to GoDaddy.com and, uh, and use coupon code MGG 30. If you have any trouble, they've got 24 seven support, uh, really dedicated to small business. They're the largest domain registrar. And again, really big savings. I think it's, they have something like 13 million customers, which is crazy. Uh, so, you know, they're doing something right. So visit GoDaddy.com, use coupon code MGG30, and it saves you 30% off all new products. Our thanks to GoDaddy for sponsoring this episode. And with that, John, I think I want to go talk about Louie. Um, Louie has a question that seems to come up quite a bit here. And and so let's let's see let's see where we can get he uh he wrote in i'm not going to read the whole thing because it, it gets sort of convoluted but he wrote in asking uh about memory he's got 16 gigs of ram on his late 2012 27 inch imac and he's constantly finding that his system is allocating a gig or two gigs worth of swap now, this is kind of normal. That's actually not something to worry about. I, I find because because if you look in activity monitor or in iStat menus, you can see how much of that swap space it's actually using. And a gig is sort of the it's not entirely correct, but a gig is sort of the baseline of what it'll allocate. And it might only use a couple hundred megs of that. Using a little bit of swap makes sense. It's it's how the OS operates. So it's not a bad thing where I start to worry is if it's allocating three gigs or more of swap. That's sort of my, my baseline of, of, you know, knowing that I'm hitting some Ram limits. And, uh, and so I gave Louie this advice and, and he went off with it and he came back a couple of days later and said, uh, okay, so now I'm up at three and really, you know, when I look it's Chrome that's eating all of my Ram. And the answer is, yeah, we know. And it's not just Chrome, it's Firefox, it's Safari, it's browsers. And it's not really browsers as much as it is web pages. Web pages have gotten really complex and a lot of them, not all, but a lot of them tend to cause browsers to leak memory like a sieve. Uh, And it's because they've got so much like JavaScript and things going on. One of the worst offenders is Google Docs. And, and the, you know, any of those, like the iCloud, you know, the interactive pages stuff, any of that stuff that's happening in the browser, think about the, I mean, think about what you need to do to get Word to run on your Mac. That's a big program. Think about what it takes to get Excel to run on your Mac. That's a big program or numbers or pages, right? I mean, these are, these are full-fledged programs. And now you're running those inside your browser. Uh, so, yes, it is going to consume a not insignificant amount of resources. And that's, that's, you know, that's just par for the course. Now it doesn't mean you just want to let it leak and leave it alone. So 
You can actively manage it, closing tabs, especially those tabs that are, you know, Google Docs tabs um, or, or, you know, any of those kind of online editing tabs. Or you can do what I do because I don't want to have to think about that. But I also know that I want to make sure I refresh at least my browser RAM no less than once a day. So I make sure my browser quits every night. And I do that with a cool little utility called Quitter from Marco Arment. Uh, what, and have we mentioned it before, but it's, what it, it's really cool. It monitors how, uh, how long it's been since you've brought an app to the forefront. At, or used it at all. It could be sitting in the forefront, but if you're not using it, that's okay. That kind of, that, that lets the timer continue to tick and you can set quitter to either quit or if you want hide an app after X number of minutes of inactivity. So I have my browsers set to quit after like, I don't know, I think it's a hundred minutes on each of them. And that's tends to be pretty good. You know, I don't want it quitting after 10 minutes of inactivity because it's kind of a pain in the neck. But, uh, but you know, if I set it to a hundred, that's generally enough that uh, it won't quit on me at the wrong time during the day, but will certainly quit overnight. Uh, and, you know, then when I come to my desk in the morning, I relaunch my browser. Of course, Safari is the one I use and it refreshes all the tabs that I had open. So I really don't lose much, but I do get to start with at least a fresh RAM baseline before it starts opening all those tabs. And that tends to work really well for me. So, so that's, that's how I do it. Any thoughts on this, John? Uh, I would say I'm with you. So swap there. I'm, I'm looking at both of my machines here. So I see on the MacBook Pro, it says uh, I'm using 435 megabytes out of two gigs. Okay, that, that, that I'll buy. Yeah, that's good. Um, there's another, I think there's another um, aspect of memory measurement that we'll talk about shortly. So I won't mention that yet. And I think the other thing you want to look at is um, if you see a lot of page outs, especially if you see them happening, like in real time. Yeah. Um, that's a sign that uh, your your system is starting to uh, is starting to have a problem uh, dealing with memory and, and it's going out to the hard drive. Yeah, yeah. So page ins are fine, but page outs are, uh, I think, in general, viewed as something not good. Um, and also, you'll see the swap, and I've noticed this. You'll see it ebb and flow. So if if it gets really it, there's the size of it, and then there's how much is being used. Right. You, you'll see that change over time. Is totally. that they'll both get bigger and smaller depending on what you're running. So don't panic if they're big because uh, they should get smaller as you start quitting programs and not using a lot of memory. Yep. And I guess I kind of like your strategy, uh, quitting the browser. I typically don't and quit, do that. And quitter is free, by the way. Uh, it, oh, nice. Yeah. So, and I mean, it's it's totally handy. I I couldn't live without it. To be honest, the only other thing I'd mention is that um, uh, plugins or add-ons to a browser, especially our friend Flash, and I, I have personally deinstalled Flash from both of my machines here. I've seen that cause a lot of grief because not only being a security nightmare, but I think it can also uh, run out of control. Totally. If, if Flash stuff is embedded in a web page, yeah, I, um, I actually find JavaScript more of a memory hog than Flash. Uh, I mean, there's other reasons to keep, you know, Flash well managed, but, but in terms of memory, I actually find the the JavaScript pages that, that, or the HTML5 pages that have been built to replace Flash worse memory offenders than their previous Flash counterparts. And the last thing that I've seen is that there are some pages. So there's, there's one program that I run that's a plugin called Ghostery, mm -hmm. and it kind of shows you 
who's looking over your shoulder as far as tracking what you do and stuff like that. Sure. And I, in general, find that sites with more trackers and, and things that are watching or what you're doing uh, tend to drag down performance. And also, I, I think, uh, eventually uh, will consume memory. I mean, you've seen some of these pages, you know, these clickbait pages where it's like, oh, take this quiz and, you know, we'll guess where you're from and oh, stuff. Sure. And the thing is, they throw up a uh, hundred ads. Literally, I've seen some pages that have a hundred trackers and, sure. and other things on them. And, sure. uh, and those will kill you. So try not to well, use those. I mean, they might kill you. It depends on they how might. efficiently they run. I mean, a lot of those trackers, if it's just like an image or even a, a quick JavaScript are, are actually extremely efficient, but, but they could, I mean, any, any resource that, that the web page loads could have a negative impact. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of those pages I've gotten to the point where the page is like almost non-responsive oh, yeah. because it's trying to do way too much. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 For sure. For sure. A lot of that's less about the trackers and more about, you know, uh, them trying to like have elements shifting while you scroll and that sort of thing tends to really slow things down, especially on iOS. Um, mm -hmm. On the on the Mac, one of the uh, one of the things that I really like to do in Safari is I go into preferences security and I go to plugin settings and I do leave flash installed, but. I don't let it run on most websites. So I, I leave flash checked here. And then uh, if you click on it, there's a little option down in the lower right that says when visiting other websites and I set that to off, don't set it to ask, set it to off. And the reason for this is if it's set to ask, your computer will communicate to the other website or to the website. I have flash. And so you'll see, you know, some level of like broken plugin sort of thing. And Safari will pester you and say, this website wants to use Flash. Uh, do you want to allow it? Much better is if the website doesn't think you have Flash in the first place, because most websites these days will fall back, which should be really fall forward to HTML5. So if you set this to off, websites will think you don't have Flash installed. And if they have a workaround, we'll display it for you. For the websites where you do want Flash to work, launch the website or load, load the website and then come here. You'll see in this, this same list, preferences, security, plugin settings, go to Flash. You'll see in this list currently open websites. It'll be set to off because that's your default, but you can change it here. So you can change it for on. Like for me, I know that uh, the, the speed test site and I know they've got an HTML5 version now, but uh, the speed test site, I like to let it use Flash. Uh, Ticketmaster, I like to let it use Flash because I like to be able to, they have a little ticket picker or a seat picker that re requires Flash. Uh, so I turn that on and that's pretty much it. it, you know, like, but if you've got other sites that you need Flash for, this is a perfect way to manage it because it's effectively like Flash is uninstalled for every other site except the ones you want to choose and it can happen automatically. Hmm. It's really cool. Yeah, Brian wrote up a uh, tip at it, a tip at it, tip at Mac Observer about it. And uh, we'll put that we'll put that link in the show notes. Because oh, it's, nice. Yeah, it's good stuff. So you want a solution? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. My solution when something needs Flash is I run Chrome, which has Flash embedded in it. The, the Chrome browser. Yeah, that's becoming less and less an option, though, right? I mean, they're doing the same thing. They're they're disabled. They're they're embedding it, but disabling it, right? I mean, it's effectively doing the same thing now. You kind of uh, have to actively they, turn it on. The last I ran it, 
No, I think it's always in there. But the last I ran Chrome for a site that needed Flash, um, it said, oh, yeah, by the way, the uh, Flash plugin is out of date. So you better yeah. update it before I'm going to show you Flash content. So it's it's kind of self-aware. Okay. Okay. <laughs> if you will. I mean, Safari does that, too. It kind of yells at you. Flash is out of date as well. The Flash yep. plugin. Yep. But, um, Chrome is another option. If you have infrequent needs to run Flash content, Chrome may be another yeah. way to go for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that works. That works. You're right, because it keeps it up to date, whereas Safari does not. And the only time you know that your flash is out of date is when you visit a site that invokes flash, which if you use the method I just described will be presumably very rarely. So you're almost always going to get the warning. Oh, you got to update. OK, fine. You go to update. That's all fine and good, except when you got to buy tickets and the clock's ticking. So, you know, um, you want to do you want to talk about memory pressure now, John? I mean, because we're not going to we're not going to revisit this topic. So if you want to talk about it, we can talk about it now. I, I, you know, I, I find in fact, let's talk about it. I find Apple's whole concept of memory pressure to be extremely uh, unhelpful from a system management perspective. It it um, I I don't I don't know. It just doesn't seem it, it, it seems frankly, it seems stupid to me. And maybe I'm totally missing something, but maybe. Um, uh, so first, people it's like asking, typing what with is, mittens on. You don't well, really memory, get information from it. So you got to ask yourself, what is memory pressure? And the way that Apple explains it, and I think they explain it best, uh, at least their take on it, is they do have a support article that talks about activity monitor. And of course, activity sure. monitor, one of the things that lets you view is memory pressure. And memory pressure, I think, is just a relative... Measure of how much work the system is doing, whether it be memory compression, which takes resources, you know, processing and things like that. Uh, it's giving you a relative measure of how much work is being done in order to manage memory. And the higher that number, the worse shape that you're in is the best I can explain it. So it, it, it's a measure. But I think the metrics that we mentioned in the past are probably a better measure. The thing is, you should never see it, or at least I'm looking at both of my machines, Dave, and my memory pressure is at 20%. And I think that's that's fine. Uh, but if you ever see it. But what getting, does that mean? What is, I mean, what is 20%? I mean, can. That's a great question, because like I said, it's it's a relative measure. I'm not sure exactly what. <laughs> yeah. That, okay. So it's just saying 22 out of 100. It's like, okay, 22 out of 100. But is, can it be worse than 100? I mean, if it's relative, how so. is there a ceiling? You get what I'm saying? Like it, it, I, cause we've seen systems, you know, in our, in our days get to the point where it's, there's so much demand on the memory that the, the system is thrashing out to swap and you can't do anything. Like, is that a hundred or would that be like 400 on Apple scale? Like, can you run a system at a hundred? Cause there was, there is a point at which you will not be able to do a darn thing on that system. What's the memory pressure at that point? And I don't think you get that answer out of them. That's this is why I don't like memory pressure because no one can, no one can answer this question. And here's the deal. I've asked Bud Tribble about this person to person, face to face. Oh yeah. And he, he's like, it's his team wrote this. So, you know, that's not such a bad thing. Great guy, great keyboard player, but he like, you know, he's like, well, he got all nebulous on me. It's like, Bud, why are you nebulous? Well, you know, and, and he didn't say this, but my interpretation of the way he answered was, this isn't really meant for people that care. 
It's meant for, and again, these are my words, not buds, but my interpretation, this is meant to be a very dumbed down, glossed over way of quickly seeing, am I in trouble? My -hmm. opinion is a much better way to do that is to look at one number. And that is the amount of free Ram available. And if Mm -hmm. that number is under 100 megabytes, then you have a problem. And if you're running iStat menus in order to see this correctly, you do have to make some changes. So go into iStat menus, go into memory and two things, uncheck the box that says show inactive memory is free so that you're actually just seeing free memory, not inactive. And then change the display format from uh, memory pressure to traditional. And then, and then you can see the, the true amount of free RAM. Mm-hmm. And if that is less than 100 megabytes, then you need to quit some apps. You're going to get yourself into trouble. That's the best gauge. So that's my, yeah. that's my opinion. Yeah. So it's a... Uh, we don't care about memory pressure. Don't even look at it. It's meaningless. <laughs> it's, well, it, is it, I don't... But see, that's the thing. Is it's meaningless to me. But maybe somebody's listening to this, pounding their fist on their dashboard, uh, you know, and and has an answer for us. So I'd I'd be happy. And if you are, yeah, yeah, feedback at com. And and if you didn't hear what Dave said because you're pounding on your dashboard, he said feedback at com. No, it's definitely feedback at com. There's no question about it. Yeah, I I recommend shaking your fist rather than pounding on the dashboard because you may break it. You know, cars are kind of fragile. They can be, especially the no. dashboards. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Well, they're they're meant to absorb impact, not. Uh, but no, not. I'm with you. It's a, it's it, they don't tell you what it's measuring. It's just a percentage. Yeah. Moving on. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. Oh, no. All right. Uh, let's uh, let's go to Elliot here. So Elliot has has this to say he says i was amused to hear you dave mention your interest in making the bill plus the tip come out to a palindromic total when you dine out i have long done something very similar and thought i was the only one no no elliot you're at least one of two uh you're in a good club we have jackets we're we're crazy but it's okay he says i challenge myself to make the dollars and cents come out to two consecutive numbers tonight for example the bill plus the tip came out to 88.89 this is certainly an interesting cerebral exercise but there is an added advantage to it there are some worries that when an unscrupulous restaurant runs your credit card they may pad the bill later the way i do it and the way you do it when i get my credit card bill i can easily check to see if all of the restaurant totals are indeed fitting my little formula so far, fortunately I have not come up with any fraud detection alerts in this manner. And I hope it continues to be the case, but still I enjoy doing the exercise. And most of the people with whom I eat out are amused by this little idiosyncrasy of mine. So yeah, I I didn't even think about it from that standpoint, but there is something that I do for that very reason. And it's when I buy gasoline at the pump, Uh, I have it end every time in the same digit and that digit is not zero. Uh, it didn't start out to be a fraud detection thing, but it certainly has worked out to be, I think I don't do that, man. I, I, what? You're not supposed to do that. Why not? You're not supposed to top off. Well, I don't top off. I just round up. I mean, it's, it's, it's nine cents or less of worth of gas that I'm adding to the, to the total to get that 
the sense to end in my magic number. That's all. See what I'm okay. saying? I'm not, I'm not like, you know, adding dollars worth of gas to my tank. And, and we're not even going to talk about whether topping off is good or not. But uh, well, I'm just, they recommend against it. I know. If you read yeah. the label on the pump. Because right. it, it emits, you know, garbage in the air. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's non recoverable stuff that I'm just yeah. adding nine, nine cents or less worth of gas yeah. just to get it to that point. And I think I started doing it because so I've seen so many people with credit cards, you know, paying with a credit card and rounding up to, you know, the a, a full a whole dollar amount. And it's like I totally get why you do that with cash and why we all got in that habit. But with a credit card, mm -hmm. it doesn't actually matter because you're not doing any change or anything. It's just whatever the number is. That's what they charge you for. Uh, so I think I started doing it for that reason. And then. And then it, it's okay. really handy because when I go through my credit card bill, it's like, poop, 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 poop. okay, yep. Those gas charges are great. Totally makes sense. Okay. So, I'm sure stuff. just you doing it will not destroy the planet. But if everybody does it, we're talking nine cents or less worth of gas. This is not the same as topping off, John. I understand. Okay. Okay. Every uh, little bit. Okay. I'm not doing it, John. Uh, Irv writes, with numbers 405, it appears that files can no longer be sent directly via email while including a conversion to Excel. You seemingly can share a dot numbers file with a friend, but there is no file type conversion during the sharing process. You can export to Excel and then manually attach the Excel file to an email and send it. But the older ability of emailing directly from numbers with an on the fly conversion to Excel and pasting the converted file into an email was so much easier. Am I missing something? Why would Apple take away such a nice feature? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think they did take this out. I, I do recall having it, and I don't seem to be able to do it now. So, yes, it's gone. Um, this actually came up in conversation this week, not this specifically, but somebody was getting numbers files emailed to them. A friend was, who's a, a Windows guy, and... Uh, and he asked me how, you know, how can I convert these things now that I have them? He doesn't have numbers for Windows. And uh, and I think Zamzar is your friend, as always. And that's uh, Zamzar.com. I think this might be the very first cool stuff found we ever shared on the show. It's certainly one of the earlier ones. And uh, And you can go to Zamzar. And you upload your file to them. So you have to be okay, you know, sharing these files out outward like this with a conversion service. But uh, but you tell it what you want to convert the files to. And uh, and it will take numbers files. It will convert to numbers files if you choose. And uh, and then you put your email address in and it sends you the converted file. So very fun stuff. So if you do wind up uh, or, you know, if, if your non-Mac using friends wind up with a numbers file that they need to convert or you wind up. Well, I was going to say numbers will convert Excel files, but Zamzar is pretty good. It can convert from a lot of different formats, included, including some sort of ancient formats that are no longer, you know, unspoken languages, if you will. So Zamzar, Z-A-M-Z-A-R.com. One of my favorite little utilities. Don't use it often, but I sure use it when I, uh, I sure like it when I need it. Remember Zamzar, John? Yeah. Sounds like an old cartoon. Like a superhero. Zamzar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very cool stuff. All right. Uh, moving on to Andrew here. Andrew writes. Oh, where is it here? He says, 
Oh, he's got a tip here. He says, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the dark days of Windows, one of the only cool things that you could do to get a clickable file, one of the only cool things was that you could get a clickable file path link to a file. This was handy at work when someone in another location wanted to share a file with you by simply copying the file path and dropping it in an email. I struggled to get this on the Mac. Why did I want it? Well, I use Evernote. I have some text in a note and I wanted to put a link to a pages file for reference at the bottom of that note, but I ran into problems uh, and he can copy the path, but he can't do it in a linkable way. Uh, he found that signing into iCloud.com, he could get an iCloud link to the file, but uh, that's not perfect unless he uses a, a note and all of that. Um, one easy way to do this is to copy the link to the file and then put file colon or copy the URL to the file and then put file colon slash slash in there uh, in the beginning of it, like you would a web page with HTTP colon slash slash. And that will get you to the file. Have you had luck with that, John? Yeah, if you know the. Um, yeah, from the finder, if you know that doing option copy will copy the path name of a file, then uh, that gives you. Sorry, most thank of you. What thank you, need. you for that. I missed that. That's right. Yeah. Option copy. That's right. Yeah. 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 But it doesn't give you everything. It's like so close. And I think you may have to, last I played with this, I think you may have to, um, if there are spaces and all that, I'm not sure if it takes care of this, but you may have to put uh, special encoding. I think it's what, percent 20? Or I think that may happen if you use this. I think it does happen if you use that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And if you see that, that's what it's doing. So percent 20 is the hex code for a space, right? Right. That's 32. right. Yep. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's you're right. That's a hex code. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, fun stuff. I was, uh, you'll appreciate this, John, a little tangential detour, but uh, hanging out with the Dallas Apple Mug folks, or whatever it's called. It's not the Apple Mug. They are an Apple user group um, in every sense. Of, um, yeah, it's, yeah, but they started in 1978. They're going to have their 40th anniversary next January. Um, so they are, they are 78. That's like Apple two, man. Exactly. It is. That's what I'm saying is it's an <laughs> Apple user group. It's not a Mac user group. I mean, it is now, uh, in a sense, but they also talk about, you know, um, you know, iOS and, and all of that stuff. But yeah, they, their group predates the Mac by six years, which is pretty cool. <laughs> um, and there's some people there that have, uh, old old stuff like they've got some they've got a prototype 2c plus they've got some original uh like several original apple ones that the people you know people in the group have uh and then and then all kinds of oh wow yeah How about a um have you ever seen uh i think i saw this once in in a prior prior life a black Ma black apple two I don't know if one of them has a black apple two but yeah uh, yeah i have seen i have seen you know, pictures of those. That's I'm trying cool. to remember, but I think they, they partnered with uh, another, uh, trying to find here. Yeah. They partnered with another company that I think they, uh, yep. it was an Apple two, but it, yeah, but it was black instead of beige. That's so cool. <laughs> That's so yeah, cool. Bell and Hal here. I think it was Bell and Hal. Really? Yeah. I'm looking here in the history. Uh, the Apple two plus was also sold by Bell and Hal specifically to education markets under a special license. I think that was the one. Yep. Except it came in a black case. Okay. 
Yeah. Blast from the past. Yeah. 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 And a lot of them have, uh, have two GSs and stuff that they run, you know, I mean, just for fun. But we were talking, those were, you know, that was a good machine to learn on because you could turn on the Apple II and within, you know, 10 minutes or less because it had a basic interpreter right there. You could write some code and make that machine like do your bidding immediately. Try to do that with a Mac. You know, it's going to take a long time to get to the point where you can do that. And I'm not saying that obviously the Mac is more capable and more powerful than the Apple II was. But in terms of sort of enticing, uh, you know, um, uh, new people to the novices, enticing those people, you know, that class of, of user to go deeper, uh, the Apple II was brilliant for that. And, and the oh, Mac yeah. really isn't. Oh, they had mini, I remember the mini assembler. So yeah. you could actually uh, do some 6502 assembly. Yep. What else was fun? Oh, I remember fondly. So I, I believe it was if you shorted pins 26 and 29 on the connector, it would generate a non-maskable interrupt, which was uh, something handy if you wanted to, um, shall I say, liberate some software. Oh, yeah. For, for people that were trying to break the copy protection on software. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't like that term. Liberate. Right. Right. Well, there you go. That's but right. it would make something happen on the machine that forced it to run code that you loaded previously that would make, make uh, that job a little easier. Very cool. Had to be careful you didn't short the wrong pins, though, because then you'd destroy your machine. Right, <laughs> but you could probably just solder something to them and then build a button to do NMIs, right? And I think a lot of the uh, cards that help you do that, is, that's essentially what they did, and they had like a little button, you know, like a little button that you'd press. And, yep. uh, and once you press the button, it would then run the code on the card, and, uh, and it would help you out. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes. Yeah, it was fun stuff. Anyway, it was it was it was good talking to these people. I love going to these user groups. It's um, especially the ones that that really you know put some effort in, and and it's clear the folks in Dallas do. And and they're not the only ones. I mean, I I have the pleasure of speaking at many of them. I'm going to be at Houston. I think I've got to work out a date with Houston, but I'm going to be uh, probably at Houston later this year if we can find the date. We I'm going to be at Philadelphia and also Princeton. And maybe one other that I'm talking with. So it should be, uh, it's always fun. Like I said, going to, going to meet with these groups. It's, it's always a, a fun 24 hours. You know, you get into town and we had some great barbecue and then, uh, and then we went and, and did the, the thing. And like I said, we probably chatted for about routers for three hours. So it was pretty good. All right. Uh, let's go to Mike here. We've got a little bit of time left. Mike asks, uh, my car has an aftermarket add-on that connects my old pre-lightning connector iPod to the buttons on the car radio, allowing me to use the radio's control buttons to control the iPod. Skip track, browse playlist, artist song, etc. I use it mainly to listen to podcasts while driving. If no podcasts, then music. Periodically, I Wi-Fi sync the iPod, which is resting in the center console of my car in the garage, to my MacBook Pro for any new downloaded unplayed podcasts. I use a smart group to control which podcast should be pushed. Sometimes I get behind schedule and there are hours of podcasts waiting to be heard on the device. When I sync the device in iTunes, it always makes a backup. And sometimes this backup takes a long time over Wi-Fi. Is there a way to bypass the backup in iTunes during a sync? There is nothing on the iPod that I can't recreate from scratch if necessary. No photos, no apps, no nothing. I don't need a backup of all the podcasts slash music that are on the device. I just want iTunes to read the played state from the device, update the smart group in the MacBook, and then push anything new back out. 
So this is a great question. And yes, you can disable backups, but it's a universal setting for iTunes, not a per device setting uh, near as I can tell. And the way you do it is you have to go into the terminal and we'll put an article in the show notes. So you don't have to think you don't have to remember this, but it's one of those defaults, right? commands. So it's default space, right? Space com.apple.itunes space device backups disabled dash bool true. And again, we'll put this in the, uh, in the show notes so that you don't have to think about it. But, uh, but that's, that's how you can, uh, that's how you can turn this, this, um, these backups off. Uh, The other way is to set your device to backup to iCloud and then it won't auto backup to iTunes even when you sync uh, over Wi-Fi or or USB. But if you don't want to also be backing up or if you don't want to instead be backing up to iCloud, if you just don't want to be backing up at all, then leave it as an iTunes backup but turn this, um, I guess you're turning this flag to true, which disables the backups. Hmm. Always good stuff. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. That's how I'm so I'm, I'm set up for iCloud. Yeah, and I'll add one course. last thing here. There may be, I'm not sure, depending on your needs, but you may not even want to sync devices. Oh, sure. In, Dave. Sure. And I'll just give a quick tip here. If you want to set that, now that you don't have to dig in the terminal. Actually, you can do that through uh, iTunes. If you go to iTunes, preferences, devices, you're going to see a little checkbox that says prevent iPods, iPhones, and iPads from syncing automatically. There you go. There you go. Yeah. I don't know why you'd want to, but maybe for similar reasons. You, know, oh, you don't want dude, all that I, data. I turn that off I, or I check that box on mine because sometimes really? I just, yeah. Okay. Cause I like, like on this machine earlier, I plugged in my, my phone to charge. Now I did it so we could test that battery percentage utility, but other times I just plug it in while I'm podcasting and doing stuff. I don't want iTunes just launching simply because I plugged my phone in and that prevents that from happening. Uh, uh, uh and you can prevent, while we're at it, uh, bonus tips, you can prevent photos from launching by, uh, you have to let it auto launch once when you plug in your device or, or have it launched prior, but then click on your device in photos. And when you do up at the top of the screen, will be a little box, uncheck it. I think the box says something along the lines of, uh, you know, automatically open photos for this device. It'll be very clear. I just don't want to open photos cause I'm podcasting right now, but, uh, but uncheck that and then photos won't auto launch in the background either. And, and of course, these settings, you don't have to, to set both of them. So if you want iTunes to sync or if you want photos to sync, but not uh, the other, you know, just do one versus the other. So, yeah, I, uh, I, I like I like being able to, to do that. And I think, yeah, in the uh, in the stream here at MacGeekUp.com slash stream in the chat room, uh, Brian Monroe or I, sorry, Alex is saying that you can set that with image capture too. And I, I seem to recall that. So uh, you can, you can do it in one place or the other. All right. What else do we have, John? Let's see. We want to talk about, uh, you want to talk about this Mac mini thing from David here? Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's going to be an ongoing saga here, but, um, Something to address. Okay. So, um, so he says, uh, I have a Mac Mini 7, 1, late 2014, and checked MacSales.com, and pretty much I'm screwed. Well, you're not, but uh, there are no memory or HDD updates they recommend. Hmm. 
I'd like to speed this machine up. And since I'm pretty much locked out of any sort of upgrade, I was wondering if I purchased an external SSD and booted to it via USB 3, if that's an option. Would I get any benefit in doing so versus internal hard disk drive? I've done the SSD upgrade in older machines before, and it's worked wonders. But with zero options on the Mac Mini, this was all I could think of. Any thoughts on this before I start experimenting? A number of thoughts. So one, as you may know, this is the machine that I have, Dave. Right. And I think as you also recall, uh, I upgraded the crummy rotational hard drive that Apple put in there when I bought it. And I was fully aware of this. And this was my intent. Um, I pulled that crummy hard drive out. I use it for doing a backup because speed is not a really of a concern when I'm doing a backup at two sure. in the morning or whenever. And I replaced it with the, I think it's a crucial one terabyte SSD. Wonderful. Uh, SATA three. Um, but then I'm scratching my head, Dave, kind of like we did in the last uh, episode. And I'm like, why would Mac sales, I wouldn't say they're lying, but why would they not say that you could upgrade the hard drive in this machine when clearly you can? And if you go to iFixit, you'll see, and that's where I actually went to get the instructions for taking this thing apart. It's, it's a challenge. The Mac Mini, they don't make... I, I would say the 2014, it's easier to get in there and replace things. It's a better design than at least the 2010 that I had. That one was... was uh, you could actually disconnect key components when you were sliding out the motherboard. Not so in the 2014. Uh, I think the 2014 is nice to work on. The only caveat with the 2014 is you need a special TR6 screwdriver. It's a security Torx. That was the only thing. So I Okay. So you take off the bottom cover and then I looked at the screws and I'm like, oh, that's a T6. And then I took my T6 and I'm like, it doesn't fit because there's a hole in the middle of a security Torx. So you got to, I, I ordered it, I think for my fix it, where I ordered a special screwdriver and I think it's in some of their latest kits. So I went to them. I actually went to their site, Dave, and I chatted with one of the representatives and I'm like, I didn't say you're li- uh, but I'm like, yeah. why are you not saying that you can upgrade this machine? And they have an upgrade feature on their site where you say this is my machine and they'll tell you here's all the things available and they don't say that a hard drive upgrade is available i'm like well why is that guys and they gave me a good answer and i'll go with them on this this machine came in various configurations so it has two ports so it has a sata 3 port for the rotational hard drive which is what i ordered but it also has an e-sata as far as i can tell kind of proprietary connector in there so if you okay. order it either solely with an SSD or uh, a fusion drive, that slot is going to have the SSD and the... Uh, so I guess the answer is there's no guarantee that it's going to have the bracket or... Right. And it's pretty much a bracket right. for you to put in a two and a half inch uh, SATA 3 SSD. That makes sense. So can you buy that bracket or, or, or like if it didn't I've, come with it? No, you shall not. From what I've one. seen, there are discussion threads on iFixit talking about this. So you can either get an adapter that makes okay. their eSATA connector friendlier for installing a third party upgrade, or you can buy the bracket. It's a plastic bracket. And then if, if you get that bracket, then you can put in a standard two and a half inch uh, SATA three SSD. Got it. So I, I, this is now, now it makes sense, of course, why they, they choose to give the advice that they give because it's, it's nebulous. Right. Um, although they could, they could get a little more detailed if they chose. I, 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 I mean, want to answer. Say, 
does did your machine come did your machine right. come with a two and a half inch rotational drive and and if it did then the answer is yes you can add an ssd to this machine no so question I, about it because i've done it i want to rewind a little and answer david's first question which is uh would it work and would i see any benefit of course it would work uh to plug in an ssd via usb3 and my answer to that question is going to be absolutely yes in fact you would see most if not all of the benefit for you of the SSD by plugging it in USB three. Um, most of the benefit is going to come from the latency reduction that you get with the SSD. And that'll work even over like USB two. You'll see that because, because it's, it has nothing to do with transfer speed. It just has to do with data access speed. So when I've done this before with USB two, I've seen huge like timing increases or timing decreases, uh, in terms of like boot times and application launch times and all of that stuff, because most of that has nothing to do with the amount of data. It has to do with see the drive seeking to find it and then loading it. So even though the interface with USB two is much slower than whatever I have in, inside the computer, the access of the SSD kind of sort of trumps that. Um, but with USB three, then you're, you know, you're getting even, even faster. Right. So, so I, you're, yeah, I think, for a lot of people, I think doing, uh, you know, for a fixed machine, obviously not for a portable machine like a MacBook, but for a fixed machine, there's there's less and less reason to crack it open with um, with USB three. Um, right. On the outside. Now, if you see so, his follow up to my suggestion. Yep. So I answered in kind. I said uh, uh, SSD and USB three enclosure um, is the easiest option. Totally. To go in the machine. Yeah. He got back to us and we have to, we, we have to analyze this, but he said he did this and it was a disaster with huh. the machine. Number one, he wasn't able, and I don't know if it's cause he's running, I think he's running El Capitan. I don't know if it's cause he's running that, but he, number one, he indicated that he couldn't see the drive as a bootable option with the startup manager, which is if you hold down option, when you boot your Mac, it'll show you the bootable devices. Oh. So he said, I didn't see that. And that's weird because I verified on my machine oh, okay. that my backup drive shows up. So you're not, okay. So it might but be, he also said, well, it might be, I mean, if, if you get an external drive uh, and it comes formatted uh, as essentially as a windows drive, then y you would not be able to boot from it. He would have to reformat it as, uh, you know, GUID and, and all of that. Right, in right, order right. To, so that might be the reason. And also he said, but it sounds like he made a clone and was, was kicking the tires on this idea. And also he said that it took like 10 minutes to start up, which that's certainly not my experience. Even with a rotational drive in a USB three enclosure on this machine, Dave, it took me maybe three minutes to yeah, boot. And okay. this is a, a kind of a slow drive here. So there's, there's something else going on, but, but he, yeah, my answer was the same as yours. And he indicated, and we'll have to dig in further and follow up on this. Uh, he indicated that, it appeared to not be a valid option. And, and like you said, especially with USB three, where you got five gigabits, that's not a bottleneck. Nope. I'd, I'd argue that USB two at 480 megabits. Uh, well, it's a speed bottleneck, but so yeah. little of what we all do right, right. actually matters. The speed speed matters. It, it affects us very, very little in that regard, to be perfectly honest. I mean, just based on tests. You know, most of us are loading very small files and lots of them. So you're never actually hitting those speed, um, those speed walls. But uh, but yeah, check the format for HFS plus. And I'm actually reading uh, here in uh, in our chat room because Alex has a lot of these answers. But uh, check the format for H HFS plus and also um, 
he uh, he says, go to the terminal and check out if you want to get geeky about it. Check out the bless command. So it's uh, man to get information, uh, documentation on the on the command man space. Bless bless is the command that lets you tell a drive that it is now bootable. So it should happen automatically. But depending on how he's doing the clone and all of that, um, it may or may not be. So blessing the drive, sort of forcing it to be blessed. Uh, as a bootable drive might might also help so so there you go so so we may help you figure that out david but uh it sounds like he's he's going to roll up his sleeves and crack that thing open and pop in the ssd and then you're going to be just blazing along that's right yeah fun stuff i like all this stuff anyway it's good all right i think we have uh we might have time for one more here let's uh well it's it's a bit of a geek challenge perhaps we have sort of half an answer for kevin kevin asked he says uh i'm a little embarrassed i've held back on updating my os because i really don't like the new style uh the way it looks especially the icons so i'm still back on mavericks uh the last version before they changed the style with the flat icons but i know that i need to move forward he says and i know that i can change the icons uh one at a time is there a way to apply changes globally? For example, the icon for a folder when you create a new folder or the icon that appears on your desktop when you mount an external drive. Is there any way to change these defaults? So uh, I've looked. It doesn't seem like anyone has written a utility that does this. There used to be utilities, certainly in like the pre OS 10 days that would, you know, let you change all your icons. And I feel like there might have been some even in the, you know, the post OS 10 days or the in inter OS 10 days. Uh, but uh, I did, I couldn't find one. Uh, I did, however, find a YouTube video that explains how to do this. Essentially what you're going to do. And we'll of course put a link to this video, but essentially what you're going to do is go into the system library and start changing the icons inside a file there. The video as it should uh, advises you to make a copy of this 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 package uh, because if you totally foobar things, you know, you just put the original back and and then everything works. But uh, but that's as good as I could find to do this. And and so the geek challenge of this would be: does does anyone know of a uh, a utility that would or or just a way of making this happen a whole lot easier? I can I can get I can see why people would want it. I mean, that's kind of a nice thing to be able to, you know, tweak your defaults and all of that. But um but we'll see. We'll ah. see. Yes. So fun stuff yes. though. It's well, fun. I do have an answer. Yeah, or go at ahead. least a very quick answer. Sure. Well my way the the thing is those icons have to be stored somewhere, Dave. Right. They're stored yeah. in that file. Yeah, yeah. And you may ask yourself. Not only how do I work this, but you may ask yourself, <laughs> sorry, um, where is that data stored? And I just found a dandy little article from OS 10 Daily, and uh, they tell us where. And it's actually buried deep within the system. Uh, there's a file that has all the icons. So you yeah. could, if you can get a icon editor, and I don't know if I, I would think Xcode would probably let you do this, but... Um, that would be the way to do it. It would make me kind of nervous, though. Well, this is because... what I'm, I mean. This is exactly what I just said. Yeah. This YouTube video gets you there. Oh, okay. And so shows gives, you how to do it. It gives this path. It gives this path. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but you yeah, have to system go in and... library, course services, blah blah blah. Yeah. It's a bundle somewhere. Yeah, 
And you dig I into can, it and you change, mm-hmm. you have to change each of the sizes of, you know, every icon comes in a million different sizes and doing it this way, you have to change each of them individually. So it starts to get a little tedious, but I, I mean, I think there's like yeah. eight per or something. So if you want to do a folder default folders, you not the app default folder, but, uh, mm-hmm. but if you want to change the default folder icon, then you have to just change all eight of those or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, Wondering if the OS would be very happy with you, especially with system integrity protection. I mean, that's like hacking the OS, dude, right? Uh, yeah. Well, and and your changes would be blown away, presumably, with any type of OS update, mm-hmm. or could be blown away. It depends on if this file is is impacted. But even a even a minor point update could, mm-hmm. uh, you know, revert all this back. So, yeah, if, if there's a third party utility, that would be a much better way. But I. I if there is one, they've done a terrible job of uh, of surfacing it with Google and no one's talking about it. So uh, it's not so good, <laughs> but it would be nice to find. You can change individual icons, though. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, that's just co- copy and paste. Or, well, yeah. yeah. What, what you do is is you find the folder or even the file or the disk that you want to change the icon Do a get info on it in the finder file, get info or command I. And then in the upper left hand corner, click on the icon uh, you can copy or paste here. So if you copy the icon from something you like, you can paste it to something else, and then they will both have the same icon. And conversely, you can take, uh, I think, uh, you try it with lots of different graphics. I've, I've been able to put things in there, and you just paste it in, and and, uh, and then it changes the icon for you. So that's handy. At least you can do that. But as Kevin pointed out, that's that gets a little tedious when every new folder you make, you want to have a different icon. I guess you could probably script that with Keyboard Maestro, right? Um, put something on the clipboard, paste the icon in. So instead of doing Command N, you know, in the in the uh, or uh, what is it? Command uh, Command Shift N in the Finder to make a new folder. You could do a different keystroke and have Keyboard Maestro make the folder, do the Get Info, paste the thing in. I mean, that would be possible. Mm-hmm. Apple Script maybe as well. Or just oh. deal with it. Nah. Uh, yeah, or just deal with it. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, right. There is, there's always that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's fun to customize. So I already told you uh, how to email us unless you are a premium listener. And we would love to have you as a premium listener because all premium listeners are able to access our premium at MacGeekGab.com address. That's available for all of you that are uh, active premium members. And we do answer those questions first. We give them a priority. Most weeks we get to all the questions, at least behind the scenes, if not here in the show, certainly not here in the show, but uh, behind the scenes, we try to get to everything. But uh, of course, those of you that help us keep the lights on, we, uh, we prioritize what, uh, what you send in and, and we're happy to do it. We're happy to have you and we're happy to have all of you. So if you, don't want to contribute uh, via the premium stuff. You don't have to, and that's totally fine. But if you do, visit macgeekgab.com, and you'll see a link right there that'll bring you right to it. Any of you can call our voicemail number, and that voicemail number, John, is 224-888-GEEK. GEEK stands for... 4335. And come visit our great community on Facebook. Visit us at macgeekgab.com slash Facebook. We have several... Not several. Several posts a day. And with many, many smart people answering questions, helping each other. It's just a great little community. I love it. It's really, 
It's a it's a wonderful little thing, and and I appreciate everybody that takes part in it. And there's we're we're getting close to what two thousand members in that community. So come and join us there. Uh, MattKeekup.com slash Facebook. Chris, I want to thank Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com for providing all the bandwidth that uh, gets the show from us to you. And of course, our sponsors, as we mentioned, GoDaddy earlier. Coupon code MGG30 saves you 30%. Fat Cat Software at FatCatSoftware.com slash MGG. Smile at SmileSoftware.com slash Geek. Otherworld Computing at MaxSales.com. Barebones Software at Barebones.com and Blue Apron at BlueApron.com slash MGG where you can get three your first three meals for free. We're cooking one of those tonight as far as I know. I'm looking forward to it. It's always fun. Thanks for hanging out with us, folks. Have a splendid week. For those of you like us dealing with the blizzards, don't get caught. Made up.